Well, good morning again. First Peter chapter 4 is where we will be as we walk through this text of Scripture. There's a, a, a lot wrapped up for us uh, in this short little passage of Scripture as we kind of um, gain momentum to get to the end of uh, this little letter written by Peter to these elect group of exiles that have been scattered across um, the modern-day uh, Turkey area, Asia Minor. Uh, they're struggling with persecution. They're struggling with uh, mainly social persecution at this point. Uh, it's not governmental yet, although that's coming uh, very quickly down the tube for them. And so we've seen as we've walked through this little letter that that's a lot of what Peter has been addressing to these people is how to live in the midst of suffering, how to live in the midst of of persecution. And so now Peter shifts it just a little bit. It's still how you live in the midst of those things, but it's not necessarily geared towards you're going to suffer instead. What we'll see Peter doing here is here's how you should relate to one another. And ultimately, it kind of culminates in this idea that's one of the great biblical principles of the New Testament for us, but it's one that we often overlook because it's kind of, of different. Stewardship. When you hear stewardship, at least when I hear stewardship, my mind uh, jumps to Dave Ramsey or money or finances on how we're going to steward those things, and that is certainly an aspect of biblical stewardship. However, biblical stewardship encompasses so much more than just our wallets. Every beat of your heart is a gift from God. You are responsible for stewarding those heartbeats well. Every breath that you take is a gift from God. We are not promised those. We are responsible for stewarding those things. Well, your kids, your children, your grandchildren, your spouse is a gift from God. You're not promised any of those. You don't own them. Instead, you steward them. They are a gift from God. When we are required to steward them, well, this is all a grace, and this reality should have a profound impact on not just us, but on, on how we live. So let's read First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and then we'll pray and, and dive in. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one received a gift, use it to serve the others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be as one, uh, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ in everything, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture in First Peter, um, as we get to ch- uh, verse four, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us. Open our ears to hear your word. Open our minds to absorb the things that you're teaching us, the things that you're, you have for us in this passage. Father, soften our hearts. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And help us to grow, Father, in love for you and in love for one another. 
May all that we do result in you being glorified. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Verse uh, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. So again, Peter is writing to these people who are facing this social persecution. We've walked through a lot of those struggles, this undeserved suffering, how to live in the midst of this growing, growing pressure that's coming on these people. And so now Peter says, the end of all things is near. And this is coming on the heels of a section where Peter was talking about the flesh and the spirit and the struggles. And he's telling this group of Christians that you have to stay at it. The end is near. The end that Peter's talking about is the goal of history. That which is uh, that which gives meaning to the entire process of what history is. The, the end of history in the sense of time is important only in that it is the occasion for the realization of the goal of history is the sense of the purpose of its, its outcome, as a commentator says. Basically, that just means don't stop now. Back in my uh, track and cross-country days, not anywhere close to now, uh, there was a time in the race. I ran distances, what I ran. Uh, ran past tense. Uh, now, I run to the fridge. Uh, there's a point in the race, right in the middle, or in uh, the three-fourths of the way through the race, just somewhere right in there, when I believe a long-distance race is the hardest. Because typically what happens then is everybody yells at the start, especially in cross-country, and everybody will yell at the end. And you have energy and enthusiasm at the start. And, and at the end, there's this, uh, you, you get a little bit more energy as you finish the race and you see the finish line coming. But right there at the halfway point to the three-quarter point, that's where uh, you're running and your muscles start tightening up. That's when you can feel your body aching. That's when there's not as much going around you. That's when the field is probably spread out more and there's not as much of a competitive stake. And that's when you can't see the finish line yet. And it's at that point in the race when it is the most difficult. The best runners, the best competitors, those who will win can race really well in the middle. That's the point where the champions are made and, and, and the losers are formed. It's if you can press through, if you can tell your mind in the midst of that point of the race to keep pushing, to keep fighting, to keep stretching out, to stride it out in that, that, that section. But it's hard because the end isn't close enough to offer hope. And so the temptation at that point in the race is to ease up, to shorten your stride, to save energy, to try to recover, to, to make your body feel a little bit better, to not strain your muscles at that point. What Peter is telling us here is he is saying, you're not in the middle of the race anymore. You're at the end. Since Jesus has ascended, right? ever since Jesus ascended, Christianity has always lived, all Christians at that point have always lived with this urgency that the end is going to come soon. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago when he said that the end is near. There has been this urgency within this end calling that Jesus will come back and that he will come back soon. And so what Peter's telling these people and what he's telling us is this isn't the middle of the race. The finish line is in sight. Press hard here. Don't relax. 
Now Matthew 24, 36 tells us this now concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels nor the heaven, angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. And so we have to be careful here. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. No one knows. What we do know is that the end is coming soon, that it's near, that we are in the last days. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 8, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So that's been taken by a lot of people to be like a key or a math formula where we can do some addition and some subtraction and multiplication, a little bit of division, and then we can get kind of this idea of when the end is coming. But that's not what that's for. What Peter is telling us is that the end is coming soon by God's standards. 2,000 years is nothing to God. He's outside of time. This is part of what makes Christmas so special. This is part of what makes the incarnation of Jesus. When Jesus puts on flesh so special as God is outside of time, yet God steps into time to save people. So what Peter is saying is that all of history is just not some random events, some random actions, some random kingdoms rising, some random kingdoms falling. That all of history is tied together under the sovereign hand of God. Nothing is too small for God to care about. Nothing is too big to be beyond God's control. From Adam to the second coming of Christ, there is a central story, a central purpose, a central goal to history. Many pastors have said before me, and so we'll say here as well, that all of this is tied together with a scarlet thread that ties, that interweaves all of history together and points to Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying, from the time of Jesus, the last days have become this begun. This means we live different. We have a heightened sense of eternal values. We can see the finish line, and so we don't run the race tired like we're in the middle. We run the race knowing there's the end. Cross country, that's where we say, kick, run hard at the end, don't get past, press on, don't let up, this isn't the time to coast, why, what does this do like when life isn't a race, well look at the second half of the verse, therefore, be alert and sober minded for prayer, so because the end is near, because we're close to the finish line, Peter says, be alert, or self-controlled, or sober, or have sound judgment, or, or be serious, or be earnest, depending on what translation you have. It is hard for me to read this and not think about Peter when Peter failed at this. He's saying, be alert and be sober-minded for prayer. But what we know about Peter is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John after the Lord's Supper, and he puts them in a garden, and when Jesus is praying, the night when he is arrested... He looks at them and says, pray for me. And what do Peter, James, and John do? Sleep. Three times they fall asleep. It's hard for me not to think that Peter is not writing this as someone who says, I have all of this figured out. Follow me. This is Peter saying, I've made this mistake before. Be alert. Don't fall asleep. 
Don't do what I did. This isn't the time to coast. This isn't the time to start shortening your strides. This isn't the time to tell your muscles, hey, let's just relax a little bit. This is the time to kick. This is the time to stay focused. This is the time to control your mind, to have self-control, to be reasonable, to be sensible, to be serious, to keep your head about you. This is the time to be alert. There's this suffering that's taking place, and it's not going to let up. So don't let that pull you from your commitment to the Lord or to one another to be alert. But Peter also says, be sober-minded or watch out, be disciplined, have a sober spirit, depending on what your translation says. This is a command. This isn't something that just happens. This is something that you and I have to commit to doing. And this isn't the first time Peter's told us this in this letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is you exercise self-restraint to help you pray. Be well-balanced. This isn't like it's sober-minded, but he's not really talking about alcohol. He's talking about a state of mind, of being self-controlled. It's so easy in life to veer into the extremes in areas like this. What Peter is saying, what the Lord is saying, is be real with where you're at in your life. God has set you free by the gospel from the control of sin, so live in that freedom from the power of sin. We have something to do. This is a command. So set out. So be be alert. Be sober-minded for prayer. Right? Time is running out. That's what he's saying. The end is near. Be intentional with your life. Lean into Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Bring it to the Lord. This should level you out. It just keeps us from the extremes. It keeps us on the gospel path. So when I hear the end of all things is near, my heart and my mind think I am so ready for this. I don't have to worry about the stomach bug. I don't have to worry about whatever strain of strep throat our family is about to get because we will catch all of them. I don't have to worry about scours. There's no more tears. There's no more pain to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in the full glory of God like I am, am so ready for that. And certainly there's a part of this that Peter is emphasizing, but this can be taken two ways, and we need to see both. The people Peter's writing to would certainly feel this way too, right? I'm so ready to not be persecuted. I'm so ready to be accepted by the people around us. I'm so ready to belong in this community. But when Peter is saying the end of all things is near, we also need to realize that this means that we're only given so much time. We only have so many breaths. We only have so many heartbeats. We only have so much time to share the gospel with others. There will be all sorts of wonderful things in heaven, but what won't be there are unbelievers to witness to lost people to share Jesus with and see how God would strike a light within them. The question Peter is really asking us is what's more valuable? Piddling around the house or building a relationship with your neighbor or your neighbor, uh, your family and living a gospel-centered life in front of them, sharing Jesus with them. 
What's more valuable? Scrolling, social media, gossiping, seeking out entertainment as something that you have to have, which is not true of entertainment, or humbly gathering with your brothers and sisters that you've covenanted with. That you promised to help grow in Jesus that are helping you grow in the gospel too. Singing songs together. You know what church researchers tell us about songs? They tell us we are doing it about as wrong as we possibly could do it. They'll tell us that we have to modernize. That we need a band. That we need upbeat songs that are easy and that are catchy. That we need certain styles of music. No. That's not what we need. What we need is to worship God. The style doesn't matter. The content in our hearts do. We're not worshiping ourselves, and so when it comes to worship, we set our preferences aside. You know, the research tells us that you don't need a sermon. What you need is a motivational speech or a positive, uplifting speech done under 10 minutes. Not going to happen. We need stories and that we need instruments being played in the background to kind of evoke some emotions out of us. And if we can get our hands on a fog machine and kind of artificially make the Holy Spirit feel like fog, that we will do great. No, it's not what we need. What we need is an open Bible and a proclamation of what God says. Because we don't have much time left. We will be gospel-centered in heaven, but we will not be evangelizing the lost. Verse 8. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. So he starts, Peter starts out by saying, uh, above also. So we have this time that's running out. We're supposed to finish strong. We're, we're pushing to the end. We're not going to coast here. We're not going to settle here. We see that the finish line is coming, but we're not to the finish line yet. So we're kicking. We're running the race. But praise the Lord, life isn't literally a foot race. Amen? We, <laughs> we'd struggle as Baptists. Those potlucks would look a whole lot different if we were literally having to run a race, wouldn't they? What Peter is saying is is finish well. So how do we finish well? Well, we maintain constant love for one another. Your Bible may say, keep earnest living, have fervent charity, keep fervent in your love, deeply love one another, uh, continue to show deep love. The idea behind this is to love, but it's not this stagnant love, it's a continuing love, a continuous love. Love here is not the verb, it's the noun. It's what's to be maintained continuously, love. And love is not some foreign thing that Peter hasn't talked about before. Love, love means an interest in one another, esteem, affection, regard. At, at our house, in my family, we try to teach our kids that love means you, do, uh, you, you desire what's best for somebody else. You want what's best for someone else. That's what love is. And Peter's talked about this multiple times. 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have purified yourself by obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another, Constantly, 1 Peter 2, 17. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, 
love one another and be compassionate and humble. So love is caring for them. Love is a staying love through the good and the bad, through the thick and the thin. Love is wanting what is best for somebody else and committing and staying. It's a covenantal love. And what's so interesting to me here is Peter does not say start loving one another. It says maintain this consistent, this continuous, this constant love that you have. You cannot maintain something that you do not already have. The people that Peter is initially writing this through have been through some things, have they not? They have had some rough member meetings. They have survived some rough potlucks. They have had committees that have imploded. Do you notice that they've had I don't, none of those things they probably did? I thought those would be received more as a joke. My bad. What they do have is they have members who, who don't make it to their gathering because they've been arrested or possibly killed. They've shared meals together with brothers and sisters in Christ and, and been the last meal that they would share together with one another. They've raised their kids together. They've spent time together. They've kind of had to hide under this persecution together. They fellowshiped together. This love isn't something that they're faking. They, they have so much external persecution that's coming towards them, and, and it's going to be ramped up towards them even more that those in the church love one another. They comfort one another. They encourage one another. They care for each other. They understand what it means to be exiles, and they gather together as a group of exiles who just don't fit in. They understand that the race of life is long, and that they're tired, and that they're worn out, but that they're in this thing together. The love that Peter is talking about is not a natural love. It is a supernatural love. It's not a soft and delicate love like you light a match and you're trying to not have it blow out in the wind that we have. This love that they have for one another is, is care, it's concern, it's wanting what's best for one another that's been cultivated over the years. They've known each other for a long time. This is a love for people who at one point or another you probably didn't like. They got on your nerves or you got on their nerves. Yet praise God you stick it out. and You love one another and you maintain that constant love. See, this isn't written to an individual Christian looking to apply it. This was distributed to churches. So when Peter says one another, he's saying love your church. Not, not the building and, and not this certain group within the building. What Peter is saying, you love the whole body of believers. It's not just the easy to love ones. I'm not going to look at anybody when I say this. There's those who require extra grace. You love those ones too. Since love covers a multitude of sins. So this is pointing us, again, love is a noun here, not a verb. Covers is the verb, so it has this continuous aspect. This love, this continuous love covers a multitude of sins and continues covering a multitude of sins. 
It's not something that, that stops. It's, it keeps going. It Maintaining this love, is, we, we continue to do this because love covers a multitude of sins. So, so on a human level, this kind of love looks like this. It's not uh, like the atoning love of Jesus here. On a human level, it's when somebody wrongs us that we love and that we know they love us, we forgive. We know that they love us and they, they, they hurt us. When we get close to people, it's what ends up happening. When we gather together from all different backgrounds, like we gather together different ages, different generations, different home lives, when we gather together, we're going to oftentimes accidentally offend one another and sometimes intentionally offend one another. But if we've covenanted together and if we genuinely love one another and are loved by others, then we repent of those things, we seek reconciliation, and we grow in the Lord because of it. Because love covers a multitude of sins. If you genuinely love somebody else, you do not want to cause them harm. You want what's best for them. Now, sometimes what's best for them is a hard love that they're not going to like. But ultimately, in the end, is for their good. But if you want what's best for somebody else and they want what's best for you, then when sin enters into that relationship, when sin, when is the key, right? When sin comes there, when we offend somebody else or when somebody else offends us, we talk about it, we pray for one another, and we grow in love because love covers a multitude of sins. We forgive quickly. This is the doing life togetherness of the church. Because the reality is, within the church, we're not just acquaintances. Within the church, we're brothers and sisters in Christ if we're believers in Jesus. That means we're not just stepbrothers and stepsisters. We're not half-brothers and half-sisters. If we've been adopted by Jesus Christ, if we're saved and believers, then we've been adopted by Christ. We have Jesus as our, our brother who saves us, who atones for us, and in all of that relationship, we're given brothers and sisters in Christ who are fully adopted into this family with us. And if God can love us like that, then that love flows through us to other people because love covers a multitude of sins. But on a, So that's a human level for what Peter is saying, but on a spiritual level, we can look and say that love covers a multitude of sins points us straight to the gospel. What does God gain by saving sinners? Before creation, God is complete in and of himself. Within the Godhead, within the Trinity, there is no sin. There is no broken fellowship. There is nothing that's disrupting who God is. There's no loneliness. There's no selfishness within God before creation. It's just perfection. Yet God creates everything to display his glory, and he makes mankind the pinnacle of his creation in his image, he gives mankind dominion and calls us to rule, be command, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. That's the peak of the word, the peak. Mankind, human beings are the peak of God's creation. The only things made in God's image. Yet, none of the rest of creation rebels against God like mankind does. Why does God not just destroy everything as soon as we sin? Why did God not just remove the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that mankind could not sin? Because God is interested in displaying his glory, and we do not know everything, and we cannot know everything. 
But we know that what is happening in the world is for God's glory, so that we, uh, whatever is happening is how God is most glorified. But that means God dies. That this Godhead, the, the Trinity, chose to save some from mankind that absolutely do not deserve to be saved don't love God, we flee from God as fast and as far as we possibly can, but God loved us while we were still sinners. When we were unlovable, God first loved us. Because love, especially the love of God, covers a multitude of sins. Praise God that it does. Because what this means is there is no sin that's too much. There is no sin that's too far. God's love is greater than all our sin. So be hospitable to one another without complaining. If we remember the love that we have for one another, then hospitality, meaning like the, the door to your house is open. Love plays itself out by welcoming Uh, by being welcoming and welcoming others even into your biological family. We love one another. We have hospitality to one another without complaining, without grumbling, without murmuring, without grudging, depending on what your translation says. It's almost like Peter is able to look in and see what the church in America is now, isn't it? almost like the Bible is completely authoritative and applicable even to us now. That's a joke. It is. What Peter is saying is, is just, he, he's not saying do whatever the church says to do without whining. There is a time to voice your concerns. There's a time to voice your opinion. There's a time to lead, to be constructive, and to grow. But we don't do this behind one another's backs, and we don't do this just by consistently complaining about secondary and third things. We do it with loving and open conversations. We do it by going to member meetings, if you're a member, and making decisions as a body of believers. We do this by getting on committees and serving as best as we can and not trying to run things, youth committee. There's only one in the youth committee here. They've just been complaining a lot, and they needed to hear that. Sometimes this means we get off of committee. Oh, there's two. Sorry. See? Complaining. (laughs) Without grumbling. Uh, Sometimes what this means for the church is we need to get off some committees that we don't have the time to do or the desire to serve on or maybe the (laughs) youth committee again. Oh, goodness. We do it by considering everyone, which means... Sometimes when we make decisions, not not sometimes, every time we make a decision, it will be too slow for some and too fast for others. But because of the love we have for one another, because of the hospitality, because of the care we have for one another, that doesn't cause us to leave, it causes us to grow with one another. To grow in the Lord. And so we give and we take. Verse 10. 
Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So the short summary is God has given every single person at least one gift. Paul goes into a lot more detail, and and, and especially in 1 Corinthians, which is a book we have coming down the line, so I'm not going to just dive into it a ton here, but every person has at least a gift that you use to serve in the church. This is where spiritual gifts are meant to be used. I know in the past that we've done spiritual gift tests, and those have a benefit, and they have some value, but they're not perfect. There's, I think, five lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, and no two lists are alike, which means there's a multitude of spiritual gifts that God can give. So in my experience, and I believe what the Scripture says, is the best way to find out what your spiritual gift is, is to plug into the church, see what excites you, see what doesn't excite you, ask other people, and figure out. It's growing together. This also... There's this misconception with spiritual gifts where we think, if I'm not gifted in this certain thing, then I don't have to do this certain thing. That's not what the Bible says either. And in, in, in some of Paul's lists, he lists evangelism as a spiritual gift. Yet we know through the other parts of the New Testament that we are all, as a believer, called to evangelize, to share the gospel of Jesus with other people. So is this Paul saying, well, if I'm not gifted in evangelism, I don't have to evangelize? No. It's Paul saying... Some people are really good at this, and it's very natural, and they can just weave it into things. And for everyone else, we have to work at it and figure it out, but we figure out a way to do it. We go to those who are gifted at it, we learn from them, we let them disciple us in that area, and then we go out and we share the gospel of Jesus with others. The goal is to serve where you thrive, and so this is twofold. Find a place where you're good at, a place that you enjoy things, Don't do too much, but also don't do nothing. Do something. At the same time, serve in a place that challenges you and that causes you to grow. Peter's very straightforward here. You have a gift. It's from God. Use it. And because that gift is from God, God didn't give you that gift to hoard it. He didn't give you that gift to hide it. He gave you that gift to build up the church, and you are called to steward your gifts. Which means you use it not too much, you don't want to overdo it and wear yourself out, but not too little to where you're not doing anything with it either. It's not, you don't own it. It's a gift. It's a grace from God. You use it and you steward it because God has simply entrusted you to manage it, to steward it. God's grace is, is far more than, than we can imagine. As, uh, like one of the ways we get to witness God's grace is by understanding that each person has a role within the body of Christ, has a role within the church. And one of the things that's been, been neat is... <laughs> This is just a realization I came to early on in my my ministry. Uh, There will always be a bigger need than you have people to serve. 
Jesus tells us this. Luke 10, 2, uh, he told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Even in Ira, the utopia that we live in, there is more of a need than we have workers. So we steward what we have. We do the best with what we can, trusting that God may save some people, bring them into our church, and then we have more ministry to do, but there's more ministry to be done. And, and God says, uh, Peter tells us that this, this grace from God is magnificent. It's varied. The manifold very variety of grace has been given each church uh, what she needs. That means God has placed within our congregation what we need. You're not like some person God has given us in the church to just sit and do nothing. God has placed you here for a purpose and for a reason, even if you don't understand what it is and what it isn't. We laughed, we've laughed back in, in, in the youth ministry. is way back in the Neanderthal age for our life uh, when we had to do youth ministry and, and enjoyed it a lot. The best youth sponsors we had are not the ones you would think of. It was never the young people who had it all together. It was never the young families. It was the grandmas who would come and serve in the youth ministry and just gave their hearts to the kids that they absolutely loved. God's not done with you yet. When he's done with you, you'll know. (laughs) He will take you. Until then... Use the gifts that God has been giving you. And, and, and this passage, is worth us noting in verse 10, has been misunderstood by some churches to mean that we have the ability to distribute God's grace. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying is grace is, is not the object that we steward. Rather, the, uh, it's the basis that we've, called, we've been called to steward the grace that we have been given. We don't give grace out. We receive grace from God. We don't give grace to God or, or take God's grace and say, you get a little bit, you get a little bit, you get a little bit. No, that's not our job. Our job is to proclaim the gospel and to steward what we've been given. So for some, God gives the gift of preaching and teaching. That's what Peter says here. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks the word of God. See, the word of God is everlasting. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God lasts forever. And 1 Peter 1.5 says this, But the word, of God, uh, the word of the Lord endures forever, and the word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So when you speak, especially, like he may not have called you to publicly teach and preach, but he has called you to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ, to have conversations, to have a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when you talk to one another, even outside of the physical gathering of the church, your advice, your prayers, your conversations should point to the gospel. And not in a weird way. We grew, I grew up in the early 2000s. We had, if you want to go down a rabbit trail this afternoon... YouTube the band apologetics. Not apologetics like defending the faith, the band apologetics. And what they did, I guess it was just like 90s, 2000s church where we just wanted to like bait and switch people. And so apologetics rewrote popular songs with Christian words. So instead of uh, I love rock and roll, it was I love the Apostle Paul. Uh, And it's the same. Listen, you're in for a treat this afternoon. Uh, my favorite was, uh, instead of pour some sugar on me, it was learn some Deuteronomy. 
I don't know if you remember the old t-shirts. I had one that was the Reese's logo, but instead of Reese's, it said Jesus. Take that, Satan. You can't deal with that, you know. All of those things are fine and dandy, but with Christians, we're not trying to be deceptive with what we believe. When we speak, we speak clearly and truthfully about what we believe, about what we hold to, about what the Lord has taught us. The devil is deceptive, not us. We speak truth. So we're not trying to bait and switch people into following after Jesus. What comes out of the mouth flows from the heart. So maybe you're like, I am petrified of these things. Here's what you can do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor, your brothers and sisters of Christ in the church as yourself. Cherish the gospel and watch how your conversations will shift. You won't even have to focus on it. What you value most is what you will talk about. It's how you will live. This also means that we have to care about one another enough to say more than, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. It means that we talk. We do life together. We spend time with one another. We eat meals together. Because life is hard. Let's be real. The gospel is what we need, and oftentimes we are forgetful. If we can remind one another of Jesus just in our everyday conversations, how much of an encouragement will that be for us? He says, if anyone serves, let it be as from God's, uh, the strength that God provides. The word serve here is the noun form of the verb we call a deacon. No, verb form of the noun that we say deacon. So I talked about it at our last deacons meeting. To deacon means to serve. So just if, like, if you're not a deacon of the church, it doesn't mean, well, God has exempted me from serving in the church. No, it means that God has empowered you to serve in the church anyways. But the reality is, if you serve, if you minister, if you do those things, it's absolutely draining. Come to a Wednesday night, deal with some of the kids, and go home and tell me you have more energy. You cannot do it from your own strength. So don't. God provides what you need, including the strength, the ability, and the energy. So go do it that way and don't complain. And sometimes this means you don't go solo. Like, go at it with other people. Gather together a group that can work through these things and trust that if the Lord has you in those areas where it's wearing you down, but you're serving and you love it, it's growing you as much as he's growing the kids that you're teaching. Because the goal in the end is that God is glorified. When we gather together, God is glorified, and in our individual lives as we scatter, God is glorified. That's the goal in the end. That's what Peter is getting at as he's talking about all of these things. We will only be a gospel-centered church when we're gathered, when you and I are gospel-centered when we scatter. Because what's so good about the Bible is Jesus is Lord of all not just over this little plot of land in Ira. So to him be glory and power forever, because God is going to glorify it. So to wrap up, what Peter's telling us is time is running out. The end of the race is coming quickly, so finish strong 
glorify God in your individual life and glorify God together when we gather here. That this love that we're supposed to already have for one another is this continuous love that we maintain. And we maintain this love. We hold strong to this love because God first loved us. And that's how we glorify God. We glorify God when we love one another as Christ first loved us. We steward because God is supposed to glorify us. We understand that what we have is not our own, but it's to be used for the glory of God. So we glorify God with what we have. We're not the owners of anything in our life. We're simply the managers entrusted with certain things to use and to glorify God. God will be glorified. The Bible is clear about that question we have to answer is, will we glorify God or will God glorify himself over us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that we can come together even on Sundays like this Sunday. Where there's a break and people are gone and just scattered in in a million different directions. God, I pray for those who aren't with us that you would be with them you would help them, Father, to enjoy the services that they're at now, but God, long and to miss this this gathering of our body of believers. I pray for us, uh, for the believers that are here, that you would help us to remember, God, that time is running out. And that love is difficult and love is hard. And that everything that we have, we are to steward for your glory and for which is for our good. And so help us, Father, to keep that in mind as the days drag on. When we're tired and we're frustrated, help us to remember those truths. God, for unbelievers who are here, God, I pray that this stirs within them your gospel the, that Jesus you died in my place it's not about what I do to get to you it's about what you've done in us God that you've helped us to see that the end is coming soon you've helped us to see God that a continuous love is impossible without first the love of you Jesus that all of what we have is stewardship so we don't have to worry about what we have and what we don't have we trust what we have and use it for your glory and your worth God I pray that any unbelievers who are here would hear that gospel and they would repent of their sin and they would turn to you for salvation. Ultimately, God, help us glorify you as we sing another song and reflect on your word. Help us to glorify you as we scatter throughout the week and go our various ways. Help us to recognize, God, that we have a limited amount of time to share your gospel. Give us opportunities to do so. It's in your name we pray. Amen.